0: You guys, on this rainy Sunday, it's three Sundays in a row that it's rained. What is happening? I'm glad you guys are here at least. Everybody's good, awesome. Well, hey, before we dive into the message, uh, I need to cover one quick thing with you. So, if you will get this card that's in your seat in your hand, and let's chat for a moment. Uh, As many of you know, about a year ago, we bought a new property about a mile and a half away from here to serve as our new church home. You guys can look around and see that we desperately need space. We've needed it for a while. And so uh, we've been renovating that property since buying it. Well, it's finally close enough to completion that we need to start talking about the move, which is really exciting, yes? It's awesome. And so I'll tell you, I don't have a solid move-in date just yet. I will have one for you soon. But we are close enough that we need to start preparing. And so to do that, uh, today we are rolling out what we're calling the Launch 325 campaign. Uh, 325 is the address of the new property, 325 Old Mill Road. So uh, there you go. We're trying to keep it easy for you. But this is a campaign designed to get every person who calls Cross Point their church involved in some way in helping to launch the new campus, all right? And there are four specific ways that we're asking you to participate, and we'll just run through these quickly. Uh, Number one, we want you to RSVP for a gathering. When we move, we're going to go from four gatherings to two gatherings at first. And then add gatherings from there as we need them. Uh, But our times are going to be 9.30 and 11.15. 9.30, 11.15. And so what we want you to do is to commit to a gathering and let us know when you're planning to attend. This is going to help us on the back end of things to spread people out a little more evenly. uh, To really better prepare ourselves to serve people effectively. And so you can RSVP on the Crosspoint app or on our website. All right, so that's first. Uh, Secondly, serve on a team serve on a team. We have a goal to add 150 brand new people to our serve team in preparation for the move. And so if you've been thinking about jumping into ministry here at Cross Point, now is the time, my friends, okay? Uh, the good news is we have serving opportunities in every area of the church. But I will say there are some specific teams that we're really trying to beef up. And this is due to just the sheer amount of people we're going to have on campus at the same time. So those four teams are coffee bar, prayer team, parking team, and security. And so if you're in the room going, I know I want to serve somewhere, but I have no idea where to serve, I would say pick one of those four teams. Uh, Especially men in the room, I would say we need you to step up and to serve on our parking team, on our security team. And so if you're not engaged, this is a great time for you to jump in and to meet some other dudes in our church, all right? And so outside, you may have noticed this when you came in, There are some serving boards set up with some color coded ministry cards for every ministry in our church. And all we want you to do is this go out there today before you leave, uh, grab a card from the board, fill it out, mark any positions that you might be interested in, and then come to a serving team interest meeting. So by filling out a card, you're not automatically on a team, all right? Uh, You're just saying, I'll come to a meeting to learn more about serving. These meetings are happening on February 25th and March 4th, 5 to 6 p.m. Those are both Sundays. And so that's the first step in starting in this process. Fill a card out, leave it with us, come to an interest meeting, all right? The number, uh, or the third way we want to ask you to participate is by starting and leading a group. We have a goal to launch 15 brand new groups so that right out of the gate we can get new people showing up to that building connected into community. And so guess what that means we need? Group leaders, yeah. And so uh, we'd love to help you start and lead a group. If you're interested in that, again, the ask is the same. Just go outside, grab a card from the group's ministry, fill it out, come to an interest meeting, and that'll start the process, all right? The, the fourth way we want you to participate is by giving to the project. But please hear me. If you have already given to the project, this is not for you. Uh, I'm not asking those of you who've already given in some way to give again, this is only for people in the church who are new to Crosspoint, newer, and would like to contribute financially in some way. You know, I want to put some money in the pot to help with this thing. Uh, that's awesome. We'd love for you to contribute something, all right? There are four ways that you can do that. Uh, you can do it out front by the serving boards with, a ca- with cash, with a card, with a check on, on uh, any Sunday over the next several weeks. You can give by check any Sunday. Just make sure you write next, N-E-X-T, in the memo line of your check, or you can go online, crosspointcity.com, slash give. Just be sure to give toward the next initiative so that it goes to the right place, all right? Listen, if you have questions, see us out front before you leave, or you can visit our, our website, crosspointcity.com, go on the app. Every single bit of this info is on there for you to make it really easy, okay? Awesome. Well, hey, with that said, let's grab our Bibles, if we have them, and let's go to Mark chapter 15 together. Mark chapter 15, we've been in a series in the book of Mark for about a year now, and we've got two weeks left after today, and uh, we have already been talking about some really important things, we'll continue to do so, so man, be here for the next few weeks as we close this series out, really want to encourage you in that, All right. but Mark 15 is where we're going to be today. Some of you guys know the story of how I proposed to my wife, because I've shared the story here before. But for those of you who don't, I propose to my wife by getting on the floor and washing her feet. And as I washed her feet, I explained to her that I wanted to spend the rest of my life loving her by serving her. And listen, I know to some of you that sounds so sweet and so romantic, but what you need to know about me is I hate feet, okay? <laughs> like I'm the guy, you touch me with your foot, I'm going to break your leg. I don't do feet, they just disgust me. They're, they're awful. And so you might wonder, well, James, if that's the case, why would you propose to your wife by washing her feet? Well, it's really simple. Because when you love someone deeply, you will go to extreme lengths to demonstrate that love. And that is the truth, my friends, that we see reflected in our passage for today. Uh, the Apostle Paul once wrote in the book of Romans chapter 5 that very rarely will someone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone may dare to die. And then he goes on in Romans 5, verse 8 to say this. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Today, we're going to spend our time together talking in great detail about this demonstration of love. And I need you to know some of the details are really, really hard to hear. Uh, Some of these details are really hard for me to talk about. I have preached this message numerous times. I've even preached it years ago here at Cross Point, And every time I preach it, um, I, I am overwhelmed with emotion. And so if there are some awkward moments, like don't judge me. All right, I I'll promise I'll pull myself together and we'll keep going. But um, I, I think it's really important for you and I to know what Jesus suffered on our behalf. So we're going to talk about it today. And so if your Bibles are open, we're going to dive in and get to work. All right, Mark 15, starting in verse 16. Here's what Mark says. So over the past two Sundays, we have been talking about the trials of Jesus. And if you haven't been here, I would strongly encourage you, go back and watch or listen to those messages. We have covered some important truths that you really need to know and hear. But Jesus was subjected first to a religious trial, and then secondly to a civil trial, and in the end was condemned to death and handed over for crucifixion. But as we learned last Sunday, before being crucified, Jesus was scourged. Scourging was this brutal process that always took place before Roman crucifixion. Uh, A prisoner would be stripped completely naked of all their clothes. Uh, Their hands would be tied above their heads to a wooden post so that their back was nice and stretched out. And then Roman soldiers would take turns beating those prisoners with a whip-like instrument that had pieces of sharp bone and metal embedded in the straps. This was such a brutal beating that, that a lot of prisoners died during the process. Didn't even make it to their crosses But Mark tells us that Jesus survives, and afterwards he is led by soldiers to a place called the Praetorium, or as he calls it, the governor's headquarters. This was located somewhere inside Herod's palace in the city of Jerusalem. The whole battalion of soldiers who traveled to Jerusalem for Passover with Pilate, this Roman governor, they were there, could have been anywhere from two to 600 men. And Mark tells us that these soldiers begin to mock Jesus, They decide, all right, man, you want to claim to be some type of king? We'll treat you like a king. And so they throw this purple robe onto his shredded, bleeding back. Purple was the color of royalty in this culture. Uh, They drive this crown of thorns down onto his head. It's believed by some scholars and historians that this crown may have been fashioned from thorns so thick, so sharp, so durable that the Jewish people would have used them for sewing. And after driving this crown of thorns onto his head, they begin to salute Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews. And and as they do, they take a reed, probably the one in his hand, that they had given him as a false scepter. And they begin to beat that crown of thorns deeper into his scalp. And then Mark says they spit on Jesus. And the word spit in in the Greek, if you look at the tense, it means that they kept on spitting. It was not like a one-time thing. They get on their knees and... They take part in false worship, pay homage to Jesus. And we have no idea how long this went on. All we know is that when they were done mocking him and making sport of him, they ripped this purple cloak from his back, which I imagine was extremely painful. Uh, Several years ago, I had a very minor surgery and I had to change the bandage on my wound very regularly. And as the wound healed, blood and serum would leak into the bandage and the bandage at times would get stuck some of you have probably had this experience, and trying to get the bandage off was excruciatingly painful at times. Like, I can only imagine how painful it was for Jesus to have that robe that had begun to stick to those open wounds on his back, ripped from his body, only then to have his own clothes placed back on him so that he could be led away to the crucifixion site. Mark goes on in verse 21, and he says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country It was very customary, very normal for prisoners going through Roman crucifixion to be forced to carry part of their own crosses. The upright beam was typically placed in the ground at the crucifixion site. And so Jesus would have been carrying the heavy wooden cross beam across his shoulders. It would have weighed anywhere between 75 and 125 pounds. And as we see from the text, after the scourgings, after the beatings, all the blood loss, uh, Jesus had nothing left just couldn't carry the thing, was too weak to do so. And so the soldiers call upon this man in the crowd who just happened to be there, Uh, name was Simon. Hey, bro, need you, come on. You're gonna carry his cross for him. And then Mark includes this interesting note. He says, Simon, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Seems like a strange thing to put in the middle of a story about Jesus's crucifixion, right? Here's the guy and here are the names of his sons. Why would he do that? Well, it's believed that Mark's audience likely knew these two men. You know, I've shared with you at various points throughout the series that Mark was writing his gospel to a Roman audience, Christians in the city of Rome, uh, probably the same Christians Paul served and ministered to. Well, in Romans 16, you find Paul talking about some guy named Rufus. And it's believed that Rufus was probably the same guy as this Rufus. And this was most likely Mark's way of saying to his Roman audience, you guys know the Simon I'm talking about. The Simon who carried Jesus' cross, he's the dad of the two guys that go to church with you. That run in the same circles as you, Alexander and Rufus. As Simon is is walking behind Jesus and these Roman soldiers carrying this crossbeam, Mark says that the group, they finally make it to the site where Jesus would be put to death. It's called Golgotha, or as Mark says, the place of a skull. Uh, in English, we commonly refer to the site as Calvary. If you guys have been around Crosspoint for any length of time or grew up in church, you probably sang songs about Calvary, right? Well, Calvary comes from a Latin word that means, guess what? Skull. yeah. And it's believed that this site got its name because the place actually looked like a human skull. And and I'll show you a picture of uh, the the site that's traditionally believed to have been Golgotha. This is it. It'll be up on the screens. Can you see it? Can you see the eye sockets? You see the nose? Uh, If you ever go to Israel, they'll take you and you can actually see this site. I've been there years ago. And I will tell you that the picture does not do it justice. We don't know 100% for sure if this was the place, but there is a high probability that this is where Jesus was crucified. And so after he arrives here, Mark says that, that someone tried to give him this drink. It was wine mixed with myrrh, basically a sedative or a pain reliever. There are historical records that report women hanging around the crosses of criminals outside the city walls of Jerusalem, giving these criminals, this specific drink, in hopes of deadening the pain of crucifixion. Isn't it interesting? Jesus refuses it. Basically says, no, I don't want it. I'm going to suffer the immense pain of the cross with every single one of my senses intact. And then Mark writes very simply that Jesus was crucified. Now, we're not sure why Mark leaves out all the details of the crucifixion. Uh, It could have been that because he was writing to a Roman audience who were very familiar with how crucifixion worked, that he felt no need to include any details about what Jesus suffered. But for those of us in the room today who are unfamiliar with crucifixion, uh, I want to briefly share with you what Jesus experienced at this point. After reaching the crucifixion site, he would have been stripped completely naked yet again. You see, prisoners were often crucified naked on the side of the road at eye level to those passing by. I know in a lot of the pictures you see Jesus crucified. He's up on this hill and people are like way down below. That wasn't crucifixion. Again, naked side of the road so that people passing by could get in your face and mock you and spit upon you. And this was done for the purpose of completely humiliating and dehumanizing victims of the cross. That was the point of crucifixion. In fact, the Romans said that those who were condemned to die by crucifixion were men condemned to the death of a beast. They weren't even treated as people. They were treated as worthless animals. And so here's Jesus, stripped naked. They, they stretch his arms out across that heavy wooden beam, and they take square spikes, and they drive each through his wrist. Again, in pictures, I know it's common for the nails to be depicted as going through the hands, The problem was the hands weren't strong enough to support the weight of a criminal on the cross. And so instead, the nails would be driven through the wrists uh, where the radius and the ulna bones meet. And it would serve as a way for that body to be supported as it hung from that tree. They would have then lifted Jesus up on that cross beam and dropped the beam onto the upright beam sticking out of the earth. And his shoulders at this point would have likely dislocated as was common for many criminals. And then somehow, some way, they would have nailed his feet into the upright beam. There were many different ways of doing this. When you study archaeology and, and you look at the bodies of crucified prisoners, you find that sometimes they would stack the feet, one nail, one nail through the middle. Sometimes they would nail the feet separately. At other times, they would put the feet on the sides of the crosses and drive nails through the heels of these crucified men. But I just want you to imagine there's Jesus hanging naked from his cross he's covered in his own blood in his own sweat his own tears there's this inscription above his head that reads the king of the jews it was customary for criminals to wear their charges while on their crosses the charges against jesus were treason And so in a very sarcastic way, they they put those charges on display above his head. The prisoners that crucified him are in front of him, dividing up his clothes. And then people are passing by, and they're just shaking their heads, getting in his face, mocking him, ridiculing him, as were the two criminals crucified on either side of him. And it's very obvious from Mark's description that the crucifixion of Jesus was a direct fulfillment of Psalm 22. This prophetic psalm about God's suffering Savior. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. So here's this crowd in front of Jesus, fulfilling Old Testament scripture about his crucifixion, and they don't even realize the scriptures about them. And as they're doing so, the chief priests and the elders, these two groups of religious leaders responsible for getting Jesus to that cross, they start saying to one another, he saved others, which he did, right? All throughout the book of Mark, we see him saving people in so many different ways, from sin, from death, from leprosy, from blindness, from lameness. He saves people from demon possession. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Listen, I need you to know that statement is both true and false. It is false in the sense that Jesus lacked the necessary power to save himself from the cross. Right? We know that uh, from places like Matthew twenty six fifty three, that at any point Jesus could have called on God his Father And God the Father would have sent 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels to save Jesus off that cross. So false. The statement is true in the sense that if Jesus wanted to save others, he couldn't save himself. I mean, his whole purpose for coming to earth was for this moment. He came to lay his life down to buy sinners like you and me back to God. And and so if Jesus saved himself from the cross, he couldn't save us. And today we would still be lost, hopeless, stuck in sin, on our way to experience the wrath and judgment of God. And so what in the world kept Jesus there? What kept him on that cross two thousand years ago? Was it the nails? Was it the soldiers? Was it the crowds? Well, I would answer that question and go, D none of the above. I truly believe from what I see in the scriptures that there was one thing that kept Jesus on that cross, and that one thing was love. First and foremost, it was his love for God the Father. Jesus wanted to be obedient to what God sent him to do, but it was also his great love for you and me. In the next verses, man, we start to see the fullness of that love on display in some incredible, incredible ways. Keep reading with me. Verse 33, Mark goes on, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, uh, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. And so Mark tells us in the text that Jesus was crucified at the third hour. This was about 9 o'clock in the morning, 9 a.m. At the sixth hour. Darkness came over the entire land. This was noon, and it stayed there until the ninth hour. This was three o'clock in the afternoon. And so as Jesus is dying, darkness covers the entire land uh, where Jesus is dying for three hours. In the Bible, darkness during the daytime is often associated with God's judgment. One of the clearest examples of this is found in the book of Exodus. Right? God was pouring out his judgment onto the land of Egypt Uh, Pouring out all these plagues, trying to convince Pharaoh to let his people, the nation of Israel, go free out of slavery. The ninth plague that God poured out on Egypt was, even if you don't know the story, you're new to church, just say darkness, you'll get it right. It was, yeah, darkness. And so I want you to see and understand here that as Jesus is dying on the cross, even nature itself is testifying to the fact that God is acting in judgment. And who is he judging? Judging Jesus. See, if you were here a few weeks ago when I preached on Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, there he was agonizing over what he would face, overcome with horror and anguish because he knew a short time later he would be forsaken and abandoned by God for the sins of the world. This was the moment that it happened. Three o'clock in the afternoon, this is when Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 teaches, this was that moment when Jesus became our sin. And this, my friends, was by far the worst part of the cross for him. I mean, as hellish and as gruesome as the physical sufferings were, and they were bad, they couldn't compare with what Jesus suffered spiritually. You see, he got a taste spiritually of what hell is literally like. As he hung there covered in our sin and in our shame, he was completely cut off from the presence of God the Father. And he cried out, my God, my God. The first and only time in the Gospels that Jesus refers to God as God and not as Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, this is not a rhetorical question. The answer is very clear. Why did God forsake Jesus? It was for you. It was for me. Every bit of judgment that should have fallen on us fell on him. And out of his great love for us, God abandoned Jesus at the cross so he'd never have to abandon you and me. Here's Jesus dying in our place. Abandoned by God, crying out in spiritual agony. And as he's doing so, Mark tells us that the crowd begins to mock him yet again. I mean, this is just pure evil. They hear Jesus calling out for God, and they say, oh, he's he's calling for Elijah. Elijah was this Old Testament prophet, did some pretty amazing, miraculous things. You can read about him in 1st, 2nd Kings if you want to check his story out. Um, But Elijah was one of two men in the Bible who never died, him and Enoch. And I think that's pretty amazing. Like, I can't imagine being so righteous that God looks at you and just goes, yeah, just, just come on, right I'm gonna bring you up here to me in a chariot of fire. That was Elijah's story, just like disappeared. Well, the popular Jewish belief during this time in history was this, that Elijah would come and help righteous people in their times of suffering and need. And so as Jesus is crying out, somebody goes and they get a sponge and they fill it with this sour wine and very mockingly they say something like this as they raise it to Jesus. Hey, let's uh, let's refresh him. Let's hydrate him. Let's prolong his life and see if Elijah shows up. Let's keep this brother alive and and let's see if Elijah actually comes to take him down from his cross. And then Mark goes on to tell us that a short time later that he utters this loud cry and he breathes his last. Listen, you need to know that is highly unusual. Prisoners who were crucified typically died by means of suffocation. Because they hung from their arms, their diaphragms would collapse in on themselves, and anytime they wanted to breathe, they would have to pull up on those nails in the wrists, push up on those nails in their feet just to get air in. This was a very slow, painful way to die. Sometimes prisoners would last for days on their crosses, but there would come a point when they would become so weak they couldn't pull themselves up any longer to get air, and they would literally die by asphyxiation. And so to expect a prisoner who's suffocating to utter a loud cry just didn't happen. Yet here's Jesus crying out in the moment of his death. And I believe it was that cry of victory that we find in John nineteen thirty. It is finished, proving that even in this moment of death, that the God of the universe was still completely in control. And this becomes even more clear when you start to pay attention to this curtain Mark describes. This is interesting, Mark turns our attention from the cross of Jesus and he takes us into the Jerusalem temple, just for a moment, and he tells us in the moment that Jesus died, this curtain in the Jerusalem temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now you need to know, this was not a thin, flimsy little curtain. This was a massive wall-like curtain made of very thick, heavy material, and it separated what was known as the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was where the presence and glory of God dwelt. Only one man could go into that area of the temple, the high priest, the holiest man in Israel. And he could only go in one time a year. And when he went in, there were all these like regulations he had to meet. You can find them in Leviticus 16 if you want to read about it. But he had to dress a certain way had to have bathed himself a certain way, had to present a series of blood sacrifices to atone for sin, both his own and the sins of the people. And this was such a serious thing that before going into the presence of God, they would tie a bell to this guy along with a rope, and then they would stand outside the curtain and they would listen, and they would know if that bell stops ringing, that brother did something wrong before going in there. If we don't hear the bell, that means he's dead and it's time to pull the rope and to get him out of there. You see, this curtain in the temple made it undeniably clear that it was impossible for sinful people to enter the presence of God. Yet when Jesus died, that changed entirely. God himself ripped that curtain in two from top to bottom and declared to people like you and me, the way is now open. God, he's saying through this curtain, I need you to know the sacrifice of Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. There are no longer any barriers between me and people like you and anyone who believes and trusts in my son Jesus is free to enter in. And look, just to make sure we get the point, Mark tells us about the first guy that goes in. He was a Roman centurion, not even a Jew, a Gentile. A soldier who oversaw and led 100 other soldiers. This was a tough, brutal, hardened man, very familiar with death. I mean, he probably saw countless numbers of people die to the point where he had just become desensitized to it. Yet as he stands in front of the cross of Jesus Christ and he watches Jesus die, something's different. And we don't know exactly what he saw, but whatever he saw awakened faith in his heart. And this man confessed out loud, truly, Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Think about this. This soldier who helped put Jesus on that cross, he's the first guy in the book of Mark to see Jesus for who he truly is. Isn't that crazy? I mean, Mark opens the book in verse 1, chapter 1, with, hey, I'm about to share with you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then all throughout the book, people miss it. They don't see his true identity. Even his own disciples don't fully understand who he is. Yet at the cross, this sinful pagan man who tortures and kills people for a living, he sees Jesus finally for who he truly is and becomes the first person to step behind that curtain. There's one big idea I want you to take home with you today from this message. That's it. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write it down, and then we're going to close. Okay, here's the big idea. I want you to see today that love's demonstration, a.k.a. the cross, what is the cross according to Paul in Romans 5.8? God's demonstration of love toward us, right? So love's demonstration is an open invitation for all who are far off to come to God. This is beautiful. Through the cross, God's going, hey, you can come to me now. I'm inviting you in. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, my presence is open to you. And so in other words, don't miss this. The cross proves that it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how you've lived, what your sin looks like, how jacked up you think your life is today. The cross proves that the God of the universe loves you deeply, so deeply that he sent his one and only son to take the judgment and punishment you deserved. I said a few moments ago, Jesus experienced hell so you would never have to. And because of what he's done for you, the way to God is now open and God invites you to come to him just as you are. And so as we close today, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna take God up on his invitation and together in this moment, in the next few minutes, we're just gonna pursue his presence. I would imagine that some of us in the room probably need to do that for the first time, much like this centurion, Uh, You've never trusted in this great demonstration of God's love on your behalf. Uh, Meaning you've never stood and thought of Jesus and considered him and, and said in faith, all right, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you're the savior of the world. The only one who can change my life here and now, and the only one who can save me out of sin, death, and hell for eternity. Again, I hope if that's you, I hope that you've heard how much God loves you today. He wants a relationship with you that'll change your life forever. And if you need that in a moment, I'm going to help you put your faith in Jesus Christ. But before we get there, um, I also assume that there are probably others of us in this room who know Jesus, uh, yet we haven't experienced his love and presence in a really long time. Like maybe you're that person in the room today who, it's almost like you're walking in darkness. Maybe that's due to your own sin or your own temptations. Uh, Maybe it's due to certain life circumstances that you're dealing with. But there's something going on in your life that has left you questioning. Is God with me? Is he listening? Like, does he care? Does he actually love me and, and see what I'm going through right now? And what's making it worse is that the enemy is in your ear lying to you going, no, he doesn't. God doesn't care, and and He's not with you. Quit calling on Him, and other people in your life may be saying the same thing. And listen, if that's you today, here's the invitation. I want to invite you in the final few minutes we have together to lift your eyes off of those struggles, off of those circumstances, and to fix them onto the cross of Jesus Christ. And to remember that God loves you deeply. And regardless of what your struggle or your circumstances may tell you because of what Christ has done for you, nothing can separate you from his presence and nothing can separate you from his love. So right now we're going to pray together and we're going to ask God to move in this time in ways that only he can. So will you join me? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. As they come, if, if you're that person in the room who's never trusted in Jesus as Savior, Son of God, you've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins, to change your life, can I want to help you do that right now? If you need hope today, if you need peace today, if you need purpose today, all that is found in Jesus and he wants to give you all those things as a free gift of his grace to you. Nothing to earn, nothing to prove, nothing to make up for. Jesus already did that at the cross. All he asks you to do is to respond in faith and to believe in him. If you need to do that right now, why don't you just say something like this to Jesus? Say, Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you are the savior of the world. Jesus, I believe that you died on that cross for me. That you took my punishment. That you took my pain. Everything I deserve because of my sin. Jesus, I believe you suffered through it for me. And Jesus, I'm asking you today to take hold of my life, to forgive me of all my sins, to adopt me into your family as a son, as a daughter. And Jesus, would you change my life completely, make me a new person, and give me the hope of of eternity spent with you. Jesus, I say yes to you as my Savior and Lord.